This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, uh, everybody. Welcome to this uh, Resolution Foundation um, webinar. The only thing going up faster than the temperature is uh, inflation here in the UK and around the world. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, the short, the medium and the long term of monetary policy and how it reflects that very challenging circumstance that we find ourselves in in 2022 and may find ourselves in the years ahead. Um, who knows? And we're doing that because we're going to hear from Michael Saunders, who is an external member of the Monetary Policy Committee, having survived six uh, years in that role. He stands down in August. The, um, so this is Michael's valedictory um, uh, speech, and we're hopefully we'll hear lots from him shortly, running through those big picture questions. And then you're going to hear from Sonali Panani, who's the chief UK economist at Credit uh, Suisse, and is used to monitoring uh, these debates closely. The um, also reflecting on how the wider implications of fiscal policy and other things fit in with that context. So that is the plan for today. As always, uh, you can get involved in the conversation. Go on to Slido and it's hashtag monetary policy. You're going to hear about 30 minutes from Michael and with lots of slides. So if you have questions on those, put those into the, as you have think of the questions, put them in on Slido and we'll come to them in the discussion. The, um, although if you have other things you want to ask that don't come up, then feel free to do that as well. We're aiming to finish a bit after 11 this morning, so it should be short and sharp. Hopefully, if any of you are sitting outside air conditions, because there are some people who have made it into the building and we think they're basically here. Are you here for the air conditioning? Very or are you here? Yes. Fine, very good. Okay, those of you that are watching this online, I hope you're somewhere near either a fan or some air conditioning or a lot of water. So um, keep safe, everybody. So that is the plan for this morning. So to kick us off, Michael, over to you. Thank you, Torsten, and thank you to the Resolution Foundation for hosting us. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of theirs. They, they do a lot of excellent research, and it's a pleasure to be here. So this will be my final speech as an MPC member, because my second and last term as an external member of the committee will end after the August meeting. And I'd like to thank the staff at the bank and my colleagues on the MPC for their help and support over the last few years. My successor on the MPC will be Dr. Swati Dingra of the London School of Economics, to whom I offer my congratulations. In this speech, I want to review some of the challenges faced by the MPC in recent years and discuss the implications of dissenting votes among MPC members. Looking ahead, I will highlight the extent to which demographic trends may pose new challenges in coming years and outline my perspective on the near-term monetary policy outlook. I'll make four main points. In recent years, a series of adverse shocks, Brexit, COVID, the war in Ukraine, and the current energy price surge have significantly reduced potential growth and lifted inflation. It's not surprising that MPC members sometimes disagree on the appropriate policy decision, especially when, as now, the economic outlook is challenging. Dissenting votes reflect differing views on the economic outlook and key risks, rather than disagreement over the aims of policy. Third, the UK economy is starting to face increasing challenges from demographic trends, which seem likely to cause persistently low workforce growth in coming years, and all else equal, to limit potential growth to well below even the modest post-GFC pace. And fourth, economic growth has slowed, but with excess demand and low potential growth, 
Some further monetary tightening remains likely in coming months, in my view, to ensure that inflation returns to the 2% target on a sustained basis. It is especially important at present to lean against risks that recent trends in inflation expectations, underlying pay growth, and firms' pricing strategies become more firmly embedded. Let me start by briefly looking back over my six years on the MPC. It began just after the Brexit referendum and the subsequent monetary policy easing, and has encompassed the implementation of Brexit, the pandemic, and the energy price shock associated with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I want to highlight three important features of that period. First, as in the period during and after the 2008-09 recession, the economy has been hit by a series of adverse shocks, Brexit, the pandemic, and the energy price shock. Brexit and the pandemic hit demand, but they've also reduced potential output. This has occurred through reduced inward migration, which reduces labour supply, as well as adverse effects on productivity through lower investment, and from Brexit, reduced trade openness. The pandemic has also caused a marked drop in workforce participation, mainly reflecting increased long-term sickness and early retirement, exacerbating the drop in labour supply. As a result, potential output growth has undershot even the meagre post-GFC trend. At the same time, the currency depreciation triggered by the Brexit vote lifted inflation in 2017 and 18, and the energy price shock is playing a big role in the ongoing rise in inflation. Hence, while inflation has been close to the 2% target on average in recent years, it has been volatile around that target. Second point is, as in 2008-09 and just after the Brexit vote, the MPC has acted to provide prompt and effective support to the economy when most needed. In particular, the monetary policy easing in 2020 played an important role in helping to underpin confidence and reduce the risk of a vicious circle of heightened risk aversion and tightening financial conditions. I supported that easing at the time and still believe it was the right decision. A failure to act then could have greatly exacerbated the pandemic's long-term scarring effects in terms of unemployment and business failures. The MPC's ability to provide effective support at times of heightened uncertainty and strains rests on the credibility of the UK's monetary policy framework. The need to maintain and strengthen that credibility is an important consideration in the current setting of monetary policy. Third, in order to be well-placed to fulfil its remit against a backdrop of a relatively low neutral rate and sizeable economic shocks, the MPC has continued to develop its unconventional policy toolkit. Asset purchases were introduced in 2009 and have become a well-established policy tool, used again promptly and on a large scale in 2020. As well as expanding QE, the process of reversing it has begun. Early this year, the MPC began Passive Unwind and initiated a programme of corporate bond sales. Work is underway at present on whether to sell gilts held by the APF and, if so, the design of such a programme. In addition, the Bank of England and financial system have established scope to set a negative bank rate, although this has not yet been used. The term funding scheme has evolved into the TFSME with extra incentives for banks to lend to SMEs. 
All this helps to ensure that the MPC's toolkit is fit for purpose and thereby contributes to the credibility of the MPC's ability to return inflation to the 2% target. Another feature of recent years, and especially the last year, is that there have quite often been dissenting votes on the MPC. And without replaying each decision, I do want to offer some general thoughts on the implications of dissenting votes. The way the MPC operates is that monetary policy decisions are made by majority vote. MPC members are individually accountable for their votes, and the votes of each policy me member are publicly disclosed in the minutes that accompany each policy decision. An inevitable result of this framework is that there will sometimes be split votes and that dissents will be publicly announced. Many central banks have broadly similar approaches, but some do not. Some have a single decision maker, decisions reached by consensus, or through private votes that are not publicly disclosed. There is, of course, no level of dissent that is inherently too high or too low. Since the MPC began in mid-1997, roughly 12.5%, in other words, one in eight of votes by MPC members have dissented from the majority on either asset purchases or bank rates, with some variation over time. The MPC's rate of dissenting votes is above that of the US Fed, but it's fairly similar to other central banks which disclose the votes of individual policy board members. It's worth stressing that dissenting votes do not imply any disagreement among MPC members on the aims of monetary policy. The MPC's remit is set by the government and all MPC members sign up to it. Nor, I think, is there any substantial inherent difference among MPC members on the appropriate trade-offs between output inf and inflation when the economy is hit by shocks. Rather, in, in uh, my experience, policy differences among MPC members have tended to stem primarily from different assessments of the economy's current position and the outlook, and of the importance of various risks around the outlook. For example, over the last year, I've put more weight on risks that, as COVID restrictions eased and activity recovered, the UK would face persistent domestic cost and capacity pressures, and that maintaining our previous degree of stimulus would create a damaging rise in inflation expectations. But it's perhaps not surprising that other MPC members might disagree about such issues, especially when the economic outlook is challenging and uncertain, as recently and now. These decisions are often easier with the certainty of hindsight. I acknowledge that there may be times when the public explanation of dissenting views can give the, Im the impression of a cacophony of disagreement. But even so, I regard the MPC's current system as greatly superior to the main alternatives of a, of a single decision maker, a committee with votes in private, but not publicly disclosed, or a consensus-based approach. A key advantage of having a monetary policy committee rather than a single decision maker is that the combined insight and knowledge of a group of experts will usually exceed that of any individual. And genuine individual accountability of MPC members is probably only possible if votes are publicly disclosed. The current system also helps to ensure that uncertainties and disagreements over the economic outlook and risks, and hence the appropriate policy stance, 
are brought to the surface and discussed. Arguments get tested in debate among committee members and external speeches. This is likely to improve the quality of policy decisions and economic forecasts. Moreover, credibility would be eroded if central bankers disagree in private on the appropriate policy stance, but feel they have to hide such disagreements to give a false public appearance of unanimity. Some external commentary <coughs> has suggested that dissenting votes are a useful lead guide to the MPC's future policy decisions. However, dissenting votes are certainly not used as a deliberate policy signal of the overall committee's intentions. And it's wrong to assume that dissents re reliably predict future policy decisions. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. And one reason for this is that economic developments may affect inflation prospects from one, from one meeting to another, and MPC members will, as you would expect, react to this. In addition, the MPC's votes are always over whether to adjust policy at the current meeting and require a distinct choice whether to change policy and if so by how much. Such votes may not fully reflect the extent of agreement or disagreement among MPC members on the economic outlook and future policy direction. Moreover the votes may not fully reflect the extent to which each MPC member's decision is finally balanced or not. Sometimes a policy decision can be quite closely balanced even if the votes appear overwhelmingly in favour of one outcome. It may be possible for the MPC minutes to convey more sense of the areas of consensus and disagreement among MPC members and of the nuances around the votes of individual MPC members. But unless the MPC detail the views of every individual member at each policy meeting, and I would not be in favour of that, then such subtleties may not always be apparent to outside commentators. So what should external commentators look at to judge the outlook for monetary policy? I would suggest that you read the monetary policy summary. And for most people, that may be enough. For those who want to dig deeper, start with the MPC's remit, and then read the MPC minutes, the monetary policy report, and the speeches of MPC members. But perhaps above all else, focus on the economic data, the outlook and the risks around the outlook, because that is what the MPC themselves will be doing. Let me turn to the outlook. The economy in coming years will, will continue to be affected by the major shocks of recent years, that is Brexit, Covid and energy prices. The UK economy will also face increasing challenges from demographic change because population ageing appears likely to produce persistently low workforce growth. As a result, potential output growth is likely to be weak in coming years, with the path of potential output falling further below an extrapolation of its pre-pandemic trend. I want to spend some time discussing this issue, given the extent to which it is now beginning to shape the economic outlook. The UK population has been ageing for some time, with the share of the adult population who are aged 50 and over, up from 39% in 1993 to 48% this year. However, until quite recently, the effects of this on labour supply were quite modest. This is partly because the growth of the adult population itself has been quite strong, averaging 0.6% per year 
over the last 40 years. Moreover, from 1980 until around 2007, population ageing had little effect either way on workforce participation among the adult population. In that period, population ageing reduced the share of the population who are aged 16 to 19, who typically have relatively low workforce participation because many of them are in full-time education. And there was little change in the 65-plus share of the adult population who have relatively low participation. The share in prime working years, which you could define as 20 to 64, who have relatively high participation, actually rose between 1980 and 2007. Over the last ah, 15 years or so, as the share of the population aged 65 or over has risen, the adverse effects of ageing on participation have increased, pushing down on participation among the adult population by about 2.5 percentage points since 2008. However, over that period, these effects were offset by two other factors that have lifted participation. The first is education attainment, which has risen markedly over the last 20 to 30 years, as the expansion of secondary and tertiary education in recent decades has rippled through the adult population. Workforce participation is markedly higher among people with higher education attainment, more so among women than men. And this is probably because on average, people with higher education attainment have relatively high pay and a wider range of job opportunities. To give a sense of these effects over the period 2001 to, 20, to 2021, the share of the 25 to 59 year age population with degree level education rose from 17% to 41%, more than doubled. While the share with education below secondary level who have relatively low participation fell sharply from 52% to 32%. So as a result, the overall participation rate for this age group rose by slightly more than four percentage points, despite little change in participation for people of a given education attainment. In all, rising education attainment has, list, has lifted aggregate participation among the adult population by just over two percentage points since 2008. The other factor lifting participation in recent years is that since 2009, the female state pension age has risen in stages from 60 to 65 years, and both the male and female state pension ages rose from 65 to 66 years since 2018. The delayed availability of retirement incomes appears to have significantly lifted participation in the 60 to 70 year age groups, and together have added slightly more than half a percent to aggregate adult workforce participation since 2009. I show you here a uh, decomposition of these effects in terms of their impact on workforce participation in the adult population since 2008. So over that period, the large downward effects on participation from population aging were roughly balanced by upward effects from increasing education attainment and the rising state pension age. Other than these effects, there was little like-for-like -like change in participation between 2008 and 2019, with a small drop in the first few years that reversed by 2019 and may have reflected cyclical factors. Since 2019, there has been a like-for-like -like drop in participation of 
nearly one percentage point, which, as I said earlier, appears to largely reflect high rates of long-term sickness and retirement, especially among people aged 50 to 64 years. Given these participation trends, even with population ageing, UK workforce growth averaged 0.8% per year over 2009 to 19, which was similar to the prior 10 years. The resilience of workforce growth limited the decline in UK potential output growth over that period, partly offsetting weakness in productivity growth. Looking ahead, the latest ONS population projections suggest that the downward effects on workforce participation from population ageing will increase from about 0.2 percentage points since, 20, since 2018 to about 0.25 percentage points in per year in coming years. And this is because the share of the prime working age uh, population will fall more quickly with a faster rise in the share of the population who are aged over 65 and especially the population aged over 80. At the same time, the upward effects on participation from rising education attainment will slow. This is because the prior rise in secondary and tertiary education has worked its way through most of the working age population. And barring a big new expansion of further education, it is unlikely that education attainment will rise as much in coming years as over the last 20 to 30 years. And most of the planned increases in the state pension age and its effects on participation has happened. Combining these effects and assuming that half of the drop in like-for-like -like participation during the pandemic unwinds, a simple simulation implies that participation among the adult population will fall by about one and a half percentage points over the next 10 years and fall further beyond that. Using the ONS's population projections, this implies that the trend in workforce growth will average about 0.3% per year over the next 10 years, less than half the average pace of the 10 years up until the pandemic. There are, of course, uncertainties. If the drop in participation during the pandemic fully unwinds in coming years, then workforce growth will average about 0.4% per year over the next 10 years. Conversely, if none of it unwinds, workforce growth will average about 0.25% per year. The, the pace of inward migration is also uncertain, but it would have to rise significantly to alter the broad picture of relatively low workforce growth. It's worth noting that while the pandemic and Brexit have reduced labour supply significantly since the end of 2019, the prospect that demographic factors would reduce labour supply growth in this decade and the next existed before COVID. However, Brexit and COVID have probably reduced the likelihood that either inward migration or older age participation could rise enough to allow the UK to avoid these demographic constraints. Moreover, the recent shocks from Brexit, COVID and energy prices have absorbed so much focus that the UK's demographic shift may, I suspect, have crept up somewhat unnoticed for many businesses who might otherwise have implemented measures to adapt. The paths for participation in the workforce in this simulation are fairly similar to the central forecast in the May NPR. In that monetary policy report, the, that path for participation reflects a greater reversal of the pandemic-related decline 
offset by adverse cyclical factors, as the rising output gap causes cyclical weakness in participation. The simulation in this speech, which I show you, does not explicitly allow for any cyclical effects on the future path of participation. Hence, to the extent that adverse cyclical effects do materialize, this analysis, I think, implies downside risks for participation and the workforce versus the May NPR forecast. The UK, of course, is not alone in experiencing major demographic shifts and that the developed economies in aggregate have seen a slight decline in the 20 to 64 age population since 2014. But the UK is rather unusual in that this demographic shift comes through quite abruptly around now, with a fairly sudden slowdown in the growth of the 20 to 64 age population to around zero in coming years. These demographic trends imply that unless there is a sizable improvement in productivity growth or a trend of rising working hours, the UK is likely to face persistently low potential economic growth in coming years. I show you here a decomposition of UK potential growth over recent decades and the next few years, which is consistent with the May Monetary Policy Report. During 2010 to 2019, potential growth averaged 1.7% year to year, reflecting trend productivity growth of 0.7% per year and potential employment growth of 1% per year, which largely reflected workforce growth, plus some effect from a falling Nairu. For coming years, with trend productivity growth expected to be roughly stable, low workforce growth implies that potential growth will only be one, one and a quarter percent per year. Given the persistence of the UK's demographic trends, potential growth may well remain low beyond the three-year NPR forecast horizon. Now, in theory, potential growth could outperform these projections if capital stock growth rises to substitute for low labour supply growth and thereby lifts productivity growth. But there is little sign of this at present. Business investment has been weak in recent years and productivity growth has remained sluggish. Moreover, the positive effects on productivity from globalisation may be set to pause or unwind to an, to an extent if the pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine create a sort of tipping point away from globalisation and towards greater regionalisation of trade and investment flows. An understandable desire for greater resilience and stability of supply chains could come at the expense of higher costs and reduced productivity. Overall, I suspect that risks to potential growth in coming years are probably on the low side even of the NPR forecast, reflecting downside risks to both labour supply and potential productivity. Of course, many of the factors affecting potential growth will also affect spending, and the impact on the balance between supply and demand could, in theory, go either way. But a key challenge for monetary policy will be to judge the pace of potential growth, and hence to gauge whether the actual pace of growth is consistent with sustainable levels of capacity use. Rather than assume that GDP can regain something like its pre-pandemic trends, it probably will be especially important to monitor labour market conditions and domestic inflation pressures as guides to the medium-term inflation outlook. Let me turn to monetary policy. The deterioration in potential output over recent years means that capacity pressures are widespread 
even with GDP only slightly above the pre-pandemic level. Much of the recent sharp rise in inflation reflects global cost pressures. But there has also been a marked rise in domestic cost and capacity pressures in recent quarters, with underlying pay growth and services inflation, both above their target consistent growth rates. As domestic capacity pressures have emerged and intensified, the MPC has tightened monetary policy since late last year. There are signs that economic activity is slowing as rising inflation erodes real incomes and spending. But this slowdown must be gauged against the backdrop that the economy early this year was in excess demand, potential growth is low, Recruitment difficulties are elevated and there is a sizable backlog of unmet labour demand. Moreover, since the May NPR forecast, the government has announced further fiscal support measures. Longer term inflation expectations measured from financial markets and household surveys have edged down recently, perhaps in response to weaker economic growth and monetary tightening, including expectations of further tightening. Nevertheless, longer-term inflation expectations remain relatively high compared to historic trends. Consistent with this, business surveys suggest that a sizable net balance of firms expect to raise prices further, <coughs> and firms' pricing strategies do, do not appear to be constrained by the inflation target. At its most recent policy meeting in mid-June, the MPC said that, and I quote, the pace, scale, and timing of any further increases in bank rate will reflect the committee's assessment of the economic outlook and inflationary pressures. The committee will be particularly alert to the potential for more persistent inflationary pressures. <coughs> My own view is that further monetary tightening is likely. And indeed, as evident from my votes at the MPC's recent policy meetings, my preference has been to tighten relatively quickly. This partly reflects my view, <coughs> excuse me, this partly reflects my view that risks are tilted on the side of a more persistent period of excess demand and domestic inflation pressures than implied by the most recent NPR forecast, which was published in early May. Despite the inflation-induced erosion of real incomes, I put more emphasis on risks that the backlog of unmet hiring needs and low labour supply will keep the labour market very tight. In turn, I expect that spending will be underpinned to an extent by low unemployment for household and corporate savings accumulated during the pandemic and the fiscal support measures announced in recent months. Moreover, unless restrained by monetary policy, the relatively high level of longer-term inflation expectations implies that domestic cost growth and firms' pricing strategies may remain above target consistent rates, even if capacity pressures ease to more normal levels. Risk considerations also influence my policy views. In broad terms, the MPC has to balance the risks and costs of tightening too much too soon versus too little too late. In my view, the cost of the second outcome, not tightening promptly enough, would be relatively high at present. 
with excess demand and elevated inflation, too little too late, would increase the likelihood that recent trends in underlying pay growth, longer-term inflation expectations, and firms' pricing strategies become more firmly embedded. Such an outcome would increase the costs of returning inflation to target in coming years, and it could make it harder for the MPC to again provide policy support promptly and on a large scale if needed in the future. I believe it is important at present to lean strongly against those risks. Conversely, if the committee tightens too much too soon and then finds the economy and inflation pressures are much weaker than expected, the policy outlook could adjust if needed and inflation expectations would probably be better anchored than now. The precise path of monetary policy is, of course, inherently uncertain because it will depend on future economic developments that cannot yet be foreseen. But I note that the Bank of England's market participants survey and the Treasury's survey of external forecasters both suggest that bank rates will rise to around 2% in the next year. Market pricing is even higher. Neither the external consensus nor the path of inflation break-evens implies that such a rate path will leave inflation below target over time. Without wishing to endorse those views too strongly, I do not regard such an outcome, in other words, that bank rates will have to rise to 2% or higher during the next year to return inflation to target, as implausible or unlikely. But rather than focus on a precise forecast for bank rate over the next year, the key point is that the tightening cycle may, in my view, still have some way to go. <clears throat> now, to be sure, a tightening cycle of more than 150 basis points would exceed prior MPC cycles, which typically saw bank rate rise by 100 to 150 basis points. Nevertheless, the starting point for bank rate in this cycle was unusually low, and the medium-term neutral level of interest rates may have risen over recent quarters. For example, unlike prior MPC tightening cycles, medium-term interest rate expectations have risen roughly in line with bank rate since late last year. By contrast, prior MPC tightening cycles saw little change in these forward rates with yield curves flattening markedly. This rise in medium-term rate expectations, which is also evident in the US and Euro area, may reflect a general shift away from more extreme versions of the secular stagnation view. In other words, that the outlook was for persistently sluggish demand relative to potential output, relatively flat wage and price Phillips curves, low inflation expectations, and continued weakness in domestic inflation pressures. Such factors, if sustained, could have implied a very low neutral interest rate and required policy to remain persistently accommodative relative to neutral. That scenario looks less likely now, given the rise in inflation expectations, evidence of excess demand, and the reawakening of the Phillips curve. As a result, market expectations of the neutral rate may well be higher than a year ago, while still below the 20 years before the GFC, which partly reflects demographic trends. <clears throat> the shape of the yield curve implies that recent increases in bank rate may, in part, not wholly, but partly, have simply kept pace with a rising neutral rate rather than actually close the gap with neutral. I'm not, of course, going to announce today 
how I will vote at the next policy meeting in early August. Our decisions will, as usual, be made and announced at the proper time. Whichever way the economy and events develop, the MPC will, as always, remain focused on returning inflation to the 2% target in a way that supports output and jobs. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Michael. Right, we've got lots to go back uh, through later. I really like that last um, uh, chart. That was a lot of information in one go. Right, Sonali, over to you. Thank you. And good morning, everyone. <coughs> and thank you to Michael uh, for this uh, fascinating speech. Uh, and thanks to Resolution Foundation uh, for inviting me to this event. Um, so lots to pick on, as you, as you said, that Michael said. I think a couple of points that I would want to start with is that clearly uh, Michael has gone through how aging uh, is likely to lower labor supply growth in the UK uh, and hence weigh on potential growth. But I think one of the things that has happened during the pandemic is that recent shocks have possibly exacerbated the long-term uh, demographic trends that were already underway uh, in the UK. So one of the things that the ONS has done is they have revised down uh, their estimate of uh, population growth to 3.2% uh, for the next 10 years, uh, so which is less than half uh, compared to the 7% growth that we've seen in the past 10 years. And more notably for me, I think what was very important was that the ONS is projecting uh, that the nat natural uh, population of the UK is likely to decline by the middle of this decade, uh, leaving the country dependent on migration uh, to increase the working age population. So I think what's the shocks that we've seen during the pandemic and with Brexit, which is uh, you know decline in, in participation rates in the older groups uh, and the increase in early retirees, uh, as well as a drop in migration uh, from European Union, uh, uh, is, is quite important in the context of these two statistics, uh, both of which suggest that uh, without migration and without the old, uh, older population participation picking up like it did in the past, uh, you know, the demographic story could look potentially uh, worse than what we were anticipating. Um, I think it's also important to uh, do a bit of cross-country analysis of the decline in participation across different uh, regions. So in the United States, uh, you know, the participation problem during the pandemic has been worse than the UK, but it was driven quite a lot by uh, prime age workers who left uh, the, uh, who left the labor force. A lot of them were women uh, who, who left the labor force during the pandemic to, for, for care responsibilities and uh, for, for childcare. Uh, and now that uh, some of these effects are unwinding, we are seeing a pickup in participation in the working age population in, in the US. Uh, in the UK, uh, as, as Michael mentioned, the reasons are fairly more sticky. Uh, and you know, I think the chart that he showed about participation coming back uh, to pre-pandemic trends uh, in the UK looks probably less realistic than uh, probably in other parts of the world where uh, the participation decline is driven by maybe more, more temporary uh, factors. The other interesting thing is that in the past, you know, aging, even though aging has lowered uh, the labor force participation or has potential to lower it even further, uh, the fact is that the older part of the population uh, has, been, have, has been seeing an increasing participation rate uh, over the last few years, which has now reversed. Uh, so, you know, the, the, because of the rise in early retirees, uh, we've seen a drop in the eight specific participation rates of 55 plus and above. And if this 
continues, uh, the trend of aging population on potential uh, supply uh, is, is likely to worsen. And I think it's also worth exploring, you know, whether changes in household wealth accumulated during the pandemic had a role to play uh, in the rise of early retirees. Um, uh, moving on to the immigration uh, story, I think a lot has already been said, but I think one of the points that we have uh, pointed out uh, even during the Brexit debate was that even though, uh, you know, there's, it's just not even a story of numbers of people who are leaving, uh, who are leaving the labor force. I think what the European Union labor force did was allow the UK labor market to be fairly flexible, uh, to allow, uh, you know, whenever there is a need for labor, uh, would, it would always be accompanied by an increase in immigration from the European Union. So we did have a very flexible labor market. And now the fact that we are facing shortages, that we are facing some sticky in the labor market uh, could be uh, down to the fact that this available pool uh, of labor is not uh, is not there anymore. Um, I think the third point to mention is that obviously aging also adds to the expensive problems that governments have, which you know now obviously have uh, elevated debt levels and you know central banks' balance sheets are are, are quite huge as a result of the pandemic. Uh, but aging would continue to be an important force, uh, especially as you know the old baby boom generation turns into their late 70s. Uh, you know you can see where spending on healthcare and pensions is going to pick up, uh, and so you know and and also the decline in availability. Of, uh, of labor has the potential to increase uh, the bargaining power of workers. So I think all these factors just sort of point to the direction Michael has been uh, alluding to, which is that you know after having decades of uh, low and stable inflation, uh, we are potentially in sort of a, uh, a decade of a great transition, as you can say, to more volatile inflation prints, potentially high inflation prints. Uh, I think demographic trends, uh, potentially more expansionary fiscal policy to deal with the expensive problems of governments uh, means that the episodes of high inflation that we are seeing uh, may be more frequent uh, than in the in the future than it has been over the last few years. Uh, and that can cause abrupt shifts in monetary policy uh, the way we've seen uh, in, in the last few months. Um, and then finally, obviously talking about the current outlook and you know the communication of the MPC. Uh, and uh, in this current outlook is, is, is a very challenging time clearly for, for the Bank of England and central banks around the world. And therefore communication of its reaction function uh, becomes even more crucial uh, for market participants who are trying to uh, understand how the bank would react uh, to, to different data sets. Um, um, so as, as Michael's mentioned, you know the imported energy shock that we have faced uh, is an additional uh, supply shock that the, that is hitting the UK economy, uh, and that has obviously worsened the trade-off between uh, growth and inflation for the MPC, and that means that central banks have this very difficult and unpleasant job of having to curtail demand uh, to match uh, the reduced supply. Um, so at this challenging time, uh, you know, as I said, communication of the reaction function is particularly important. I think when the MPC changed their guidance uh, uh, last uh, few few weeks ago to reflect potential for more forceful action. Uh, the markets took it uh, in a fairly hawkish manner, uh, pricing in uh, quite a few 50 basis points hikes uh, from the Bank of England. Uh, my personal view was uh, that the guidance was put in place uh, to give MBC members flexibility uh, to be more data dependent uh, and set policy to account for the diversity of views in the committee, uh, which some of which are actually quite dovish and some of which also you know, would want policy to potentially uh, not be 
more tight than it is or, or, be, or, or the rate increases to be more aggressive than, than they are. So I think it, it, it was very timely that you gave us some food, to, to food for thought to interpret uh, the diversity of views and what it means uh, for the upcoming policy decisions. Uh, but uh, I think I completely agree with Michael's assessment of the economy. I think the fact that uh, clearly we are having a, uh, an imported terms of trade shock, but it comes in the midst of a very uh, tight labor market uh, and you know inflationary pressures have broadened uh, to domestic cost pressures. Um, so far, the steps taken by the Bank of England have been fairly cautious compared to other central banks, uh, reflecting the uncertainty of the outlook, and also a belief that inflation can itself fight inflation uh, by curtailing demand uh, and, and increasing a slack in the economy. Um, so far, we've not seen evidence of that happening. I mean, obviously, demand has been is slowing down, uh, but the pass through to the labor market, pass through to firms pricing power uh, is not evident yet. Um, so I think in that, uh, in that sort of a scenario, uh, it would be prudent to have a more aggressive approach uh, to, to monetary policy. Um, I think my view is that if the, of the, if the Bank of England uh, continues to be cautious, uh, they risk uh, a, a longer hiking cycle for the Bank of England compared to, uh, to other central banks, and they might have to potentially hike to a, to a higher rate uh, just because inflation could end up being stickier and more persistent uh, than than uh, the others. And yeah, I can stop here. And thank you. Thanks Great. Very Thanks for the perky thought at the end there. There. Um Let's hope that doesn't happen. Uh, right, okay, we've got lots of things. There's loads of great questions already coming in on Slido. Again, for those of us at home, it's hashtag monetary policy. The, um, but let's take a, n a number of these issues. Why don't we do... Um, Let's do the immediate monetary policy discussion. Then a Conservative leadership contest is opening up all kinds of things at the moment, but it's obviously partly it's opening up questions about the actual structure of the monetary policy uh, framework, or at least politicians thinking they should have views on the operation of that um, uh, framework. And then let's come to these wider questions about <coughs> how demography fits in with the 2020s and what that does to um, the economy. So, on, so Michael, on, um, on the short term... So I really like your tightening cycle chart. Because okay? one thing it's, t it's saying is markets basically don't believe the consensus of the MPC in the sense, in, this two, in two different respects, which would be good to get your views on. One is they're more in line with you on how far the tightening cycle has to go than maybe you would take the consensus of the MPC so far. And then secondly what they think the neutral rate looks like 10 years ahead so you showed us the you showed us 10-year rates um staying significantly moving basically up in line with bank rate today and staying there the um uh whereas most people still giving other speeches the governor last week are talking about long-term drivers down on the neutral um rate so what do we do do the short term first how far do we have to go in general, I'd say the balance, and this is to simplify unfairly, but the balance of the MPC is we're almost there, basically. If you take our, you know, we're almost done enough to make this happen. The slowing of the economy will do the rest of the work. Can everybody calm down? And markets are saying, mm, no, you haven't. Okay, so I'm not a big fan of giving precise forecasts on where bank rate will be, you know, six months out, a year out, two years out. As you know, I've tried to avoid yeah. doing that for almost six years, and I'll continue other, to avoid Other people it are doing forecasts. Agreed, agreed. Um, and the reason why I don't like doing that is because it, I think it gives an over, 
an overly precise indication of things which are inherently always uncertain. Um, so in my speech, I, as I said, I, the external consensus has bank rate going to 2% and thinks that even with that, inflation is above target a couple of years out. Um, I don't want to lean against the idea that bank rate goes to 2%. I'm not trying to say that I endorse that view, but I wouldn't want to argue against it particularly strongly. But I think the, the, the clearer point is I don't think we're done. On neutral rate, if those forward rates which have gone up are consistent with the idea that a neutral rate is higher than it was a year or so ago, but also still consistent with the idea that the neutral rate is significantly lower than it was pre-GFC. So I showed you there, for example, the change in the 10-year forward. In other words, where markets expect overnight rates to be 10 years out. Pre-GFC, in, in other words, from the periods from 97 to 07, that distant forward used to be around 5%, give or take. And bank rate oscillated around 5%. Three-something as the lows, six-something was a relatively tight policy stance. And then people thought of a neutral rate of being around 5 consistent with longer-term forwards. Those longer-term forwards got down to about 1% late last year um, and have since risen to between 2 and 3. Now, if that's where a neutral rate is, and I want to be slightly uncertain about that, but if that's where it is... Only it slightly. Would, yeah. <laughs> no, but it would still it would be, be lower uncertain. than pre-GFC. Yes, it would be. Yeah. Um, but the idea that a neutral rate was one, is 1%, I don't think is correct now. Right? I, I, I think it is higher than that. So that neutral rate of 1%, which markets seem to imply a while ago, I think, as I said, may have just been an exaggerated version of a secular stagnation view. And we can be lower than pre-GFC, but not as low as that. Do you think, so how, how do you think we should think about So do you think we should think about markets generally over-reading from current interest rates to neutral rates, which is why, is that why we got down, like, markets haven't actually had lots of new fundamental information about where our start is since 2019, but have come to a different view about where it is. Is that just because we, they place too much value on the current path of rate, what's happening right now, rather than on, and maybe the central bankers do the opposite. So there's like a lag in how often central banker speeches will make the case for lower our start, but that'll take a while to come around. Actually, I think it's more to do with the development of the economy and economic data. Okay. So we had a long period from 2009 until 2019 in which across the advanced economies, domestic inflation pressures and domestic capacity pressures were generally pretty subdued. Yep. Um, wage growth was, was modest, services inflation was relatively low. And so in that period, monetary policy had to act to support growth. Now, I, I suspect that what happened is people just extrapolated too far that idea that demand would always be sluggish, that labour markets would always have slack, and that services inflation would always be low. And then what we've seen in the last year, year and a half... That's not always the case. Yeah, and the, the wage and price Phillips curve has come back, Excess demand is evidence across the advanced economies. So it's the economic data, I think, which shifts the perspectives. Okay. 
the world has turned medium-term yeah. outlook for interest rates. So now why don't you take a kind of related question, which is um, the Fed has got, in fact, there's a question here. The, the Fed is obviously taking a much more rhetorically aggressive and substantively aggressive approach, reflecting maybe clearer signs of uh, excess demand, at least um, government-led excess demand the, um, in the US. Is, that is obviously shaping most of the global monetary policy discussion, even though almost no other central banks are endorsing that degree of we've got a massive problem and we're going to do everything. How do you, how do you think about that? Are we all just, in the end, the Fed gets to decide and everyone else is going to dance along? No, I mean, I think to be fair, the, the Fed uh, has taken a particular view and the Bank of England has taken a, a different uh, or, or more, yeah. more, more cautious view. And uh, I think the, the, the effect of that has been seen in the, in the exchange rate, yeah. uh, where, where sterling has uh, clearly depreciated against the dollar to reflect the relative speeds and, and, yep. and, uh, at which central banks are, are hiking. Uh, and, you know, I think for some committee members, that is a concern because obviously lower, in, uh, lower sterling feeds into inflation. And, and can make the inflation problem worse. Um, but I, I, I have a feeling that at least looking at the reaction function of the, of, of the Bank of England, that they are reacting more to domestic cost pressures and domestic yep. uh, uh, price pressures rather than taking a cue from what the Fed is doing or what the ECB is doing. Um, and, and, and for some central banks, uh, I, think, I, I, mean, I think that's a very sensible way to go. So if there are persistence or, you know, which, which personally I think there are, to, 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 uh, to, re, uh, to go more aggressively in the UK, I think that's what the reaction would be. Where, and I think the US, obviously, uh, I think the shocks are fairly similar, but then there are also differences. Uh, I think last week, Governor Bailey uh, highlighted the point that the domestic demand issue is is more uh, aggressive in the U in the US uh, you know GDP is way is higher than pre-pandemic yeah. levels in the US so the domestic problem is is bigger which can can warrant uh, and and also the um, sort of um, supply uh, reliance on on Russian energy reliance on you know even fears of of, of, of yeah. energy getting cut off those kind of risks are also less pronounced in the US which can allow the Fed to continue more aggressively without worrying about these risks okay very good that, that basically answers the question that we had online in that um, in that space what on, <coughs> on before we move to straight on to the like longer term questions Michael on um, so on your disagreements chart which is great. The, um, and definitely made me think the, the main start takeaway from that chart is actually about the Fed and the like chronic lack of disagreement, which is like absolutely stunning, actually. I've not seen it quite painted quite so. But the, um, is, do you think we should... So you made the case for the current approach, um, uh, which I think is, is fairly well established as the consensus view in British money, monetary policy making. Do you think we disagree often enough Overall, would it be better being more like the US, never disagreeing at all, or a bit more? I, I think it depends on the economic outlook. I, I, I don't think you can say a figure for a level of disagreement which is automatically correct. No, and there are times when, <coughs> yeah, there are times when MPC members have all agreed because the economic outlook has been relatively straightforward, yeah. and other times when the economic outlook is more challenging, and it's understandable that members disagree. Um, the point which I was trying to make is you shouldn't view signs of disagreement as a weakness in the system. So. It's an inevitable consequence of individual accountability, policy by a committee, and an economic outlook which is challenging. Frankly, it would be surprising if everyone did agree. 
Yeah, disagreement. So disagreement should rise when the world gets complicated, basically. I or think so, yes. yes. And such disagreement is not a sign that committee members sort of have different views on what monetary policy is trying to achieve. No, sure. When, when, when you were looking at that, when you were writing your speech, when you looked at the Fed data, what, what was it? I mean, I look at that and think, I mean, that's fairly strong indication of an excess group think. How, how, what, I mean, you're not gonna, but, but, I'm not going to make any comment on other the central Fed banks. How boring. How boring. Um, have, having been a central banker, I have great respect for all central bankers. They never disagree policy, with each other. Okay, taking policy decisions in difficult circumstances. Okay, okay. Very, uh, uh, very diplomatic um, of you. Right, let's take a question here for you, Michael, which is basically what data should we care about in the current climate? So hopefully we're going to be able to bring it up on the screen. Here you go. Right, first of all, you get a thank you. That's very nice. The... Um, uh, so on, let's just focus on what data. So there's two sets of things out there. So you showed inflation expectations starting to come down. Um, they're coming down in the US as well, reasonably rapidly, but they are coming from a higher point than people were happy with. And then the other thing people tend to focus on is what you can actually see in the labor market, right? Mainly earnings, but not just earnings. <coughs> so what, what are you currently fo most focused on data-wise? Um, activity, labor market prices and capacity measures. Now that sort of covers quite that's, a lot. That's actually. everything. <laughs> um, on activity, look, it's true that headline GDP growth looks like it has slowed in Q2. You have to work quite hard to disentangle what's happening to underlying growth though. Yeah. And there's sort of a couple of offsetting factors. One is that on the evidence so far in Q2, uh, public sector output, non-market sector output is weaker with a marked drop in test and trace. Um, and so market sector activity, GDP X test and trace, um, is not as weak as the headline figures. The other is that there may be distortions upwards in May and probably downwards in June from the shift in the bank holidays around the Royal Jubilee. So disentangling the full effects of those, I don't have the answer for you yet, um, but you do have to dig a bit rather than just take the headline figures. But broadly, in terms of your, your interpretation, is some slowing, basically? I think so, yes. Yeah. Is that your... Yeah. I mean, I think the risks are that... I mean, when we're so close to, uh, you know, subtrend growth, I think the risk of, of an, any additional shock tipping the economy uh, is into a recession is quite high. So I'm actually quite worried about this week. And when you've got a slow rate of growth, getting, exactly. getting a recession getting is recession a lot is easier. quite easier uh, than, than, than okay. otherwise. Uh, and then I think this week's decision on, on Russian gases is quite important in that regard. Very good. But if I could just add sorry, yes, one next on. thing on the labor market. Um, so the jobs data lag a little bit, and that's partly publication lag. That's less the case with vacancies and firms hiring intentions which are relatively contemporaneous up-to-date yep. up guides of the state of the labor market and give you a guide going forwards. I note that so far job vacancies have remained buoyant and the firm's hiring intentions are at a pace which implies that labor demand exceeds workforce growth. Well, we've started to, we've started to... Come off a little bit, yeah, off. but you have to assess against the background that workforce growth is relatively low. And the level is definitely high still, yeah, absolutely. Okay, L let's, let's talk about some of the medium-term um, issues you have um, 
flagged. There's lots of questions, obviously, on the Conservative leadership contest because you're all unwise <coughs> and spending your evenings watching uh, debates when you should have better things to do, everybody. The, um, now, let's try and break this into th there's three broad questions here, okay? The... Um, uh, first of all, Robert's just giving you a general. Here you go. I'll bring this one up. So Robert basically saying, "Is there anything you like? Is it, what are your general comments uh, about uh, for the Conservative leadership candidates in relation to future match policy?" And then we'll come on to some of the specifics that are around at the moment in that debate. How's it been watching it? Did you watch the debate? Um, I have to say, I, I watched part of Friday's debate, and I didn't watch yesterday's one. Okay. I don't say that's optimal. Um, So the um, comment which has been made um, is that the government might seek to set the direction of travel for monetary policy. Now, I'd say I don't know quite what that means. The current monetary policy framework is the government sets the inflation target, sets the remit. The Bank of England sets monetary policy in order to achieve that remit the 2% inflation target in a way that supports outputs and jobs. The government very clearly does not set the direction of travel for monetary policy. That's set by the independent MPC in order to achieve the 2% inflation target. And that's fundamental to the UK's framework. And the credibility of that framework, I think, has served the UK well over the last 25 years. The MPC's ability to loosen monetary policy promptly and effectively during the recession of 0809 and during the pandemic to provide important support to the economy when it was most needed rests on the credibility of that policy framework. If that credibility had been lacking, the easing which was done then would probably not have been effective in loosening financial conditions and helping to support economic stability. I suspect we would, if credibility had been lacking, have seen a significant rise in inflation expectations and instability. So I think it's, you know, there's a debate always about will interest rates go up or down, whatever it is, right? But the foundations of the UK monetary policy framework, I think, are really important and best left untouched. I'll come back to some of the specific in a second. Um, uh, but Sonali, on is one way to think about this. So from a kind of pure purist perspective, okay, like people in the Treasury and others will be like uh, sighing and basically wishing everyone would just like not talk about monetary policy uh, in the political sphere. Um, the more realist position would be there's really high in inflation. Um, that's largely caused by things outside of UK policymakers' control. We import energy and it's making us all poorer, and candidates are being asked, what are you going to do about it? And the answer is, not much. And so in that context, they just go to something to say, which is, I have a monetary policy, and it's to get inflation down, or something other, something other ridiculousness. But is, is it just like, we should just get over it, this is what happens when candidates are facing a question that they can't really answer? I agree. I mean, I think some of the proposals that are coming through are you know, possibly not economically uh, very sound or well, well well thought through. So I feel like uh, a lot of it is just uh, as a reaction to 
a very difficult question that has been asked of politicians. I think the other other answer to that is tax cuts, uh, which uh, is also we'll come back to tax cuts yeah, in yeah, a second. But, Don't worry. But but I, I think I think and and I think uh, what it. Uh, I think what it is exposing is that you know the 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 purpose of these debates and and, and of the leaders obviously uh, to say the popular things and yeah. to, to to give the popular answers without realizing the impact a tax cut would have and then what it would mean for monetary policy and inflation uh, which is which is already very high and would it would it make the problem worse or, or solve anything okay. um, so I, 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 I think that I don't know if I, if eventually one of these candidates to become prime minister, whether this would actually follow through, is is, is questionable. We're not going to do any of these things, no, do we? I, think I hope not. I think there's a zero percentage <laughs> chance of any of these things happening. Yeah. Um, right, Michael. Specifically, Liz Truss would like to give you a money supply target. I'm going to bring this up here. Do you want one? Um, so I don't think the MPC should comment on what the target should be. The government set the target. The MPC, if you're an MPC member, you signed up to achieve their target. So the, I, 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 it's quite reasonable for... Not the level of the target, but the, the, bank, the M, M bank has published research in the past and looked at good targets in the monetary policy space. So forget like whether or not the bank should set the level of any target. So the government would have clearly set that. But the idea of having a money supply target. Historically, we've had a go at this. So How did it go for us? Not well. That's right. It did not go well. <laughs> um, so uh, the UK's experience with monetary targets, as, as you know, um, is uh, long and complicated, covering a range of different money measures. Each one, yeah, at, at the time it was launched, seemed to be the answer. And then yep. a relatively short time later, we decided that a different money measure was the answer. I do think that it's reasonable to pay attention to money and credit growth, and the MPC mm -hmm. do, and I do, yeah. of course, of course. Um, that's a very different thing to saying that you should have a target for it. It's a useful indicator in many ways of things which are happening in the economy, along with a variety of other indicators, and it carries its weight accordingly. Very good. Right, let's do tax cuts, given that that is all the rage as well. So there's a question here, which is, uh, look, um, these tax cuts, it doesn't matter much to inflation. We can all calm down. So let's, do, let's make this really concrete. So there's like mini tax cuts, which I'm going to call anything under £5 billion. And then there's crazy tax cuts, which we're going to call £50 billion, which are some candidates are calling for. So let's not get into this, the micro of which tax cut, how you do it, when you do it. But... If, if we have a government in the autumn introducing tax cuts of the five or the 50 billion pound magnitude, how much would monetary policymakers need to think about those versus just treat them as background noise? So um, the MPC, we set monetary policy. We don't tell the government what to do on fiscal policy. We're takers of fiscal policy. They make the fiscal policy choices. We factor the implications of fiscal policy into our decisions insofar as it affects the economic outlook. In general, without talking about any specific fiscal measure, fiscal loosening boosts growth and all else equal would it lead to a tighter monetary stance. All else equal. Right? Now, you then have to make the 
possible considerations as to whether the fiscal measures have supply-side effects. But in general, fiscal policy boosts growth. That's relatively straightforward. Short-term growth. Short-term growth, yeah. yes, correct. The, um, and anything on scale, 5 billion, 50 billion? Well, the, the effects are obviously bigger with a bigger fiscal measure. Um, but it's important to add that unless fiscal measures do significantly change the outlook for potential growth, then with an economy which is facing capacity pressures, a boost to growth is not going to lead to a lasting rise in output. It's just going to mean that the economy bumps into capacity pressures to a much greater extent. Just to make that concrete, so do you think, let's take my hypothetical 50 billion, if we get 50 billion pounds worth of tax cuts, we basically have to have higher rates in the short term than we would otherwise have. Let's forget that. Yes, I, that's the uncontroversial. Uh, probably, probably. Very good. Okay, the um, let's go to the like slightly easier interpretation of what some of the candidates have said on monetary policy. The um, which is um, not we're going to completely rip up the framework, but is a general. We wish we preferred it if someone this, this hadn't happened. And insofar as a small fraction of this increase in inflation may be to do with speed of. Um, bank response last year, maybe it, couldn't have, maybe it could have been a little bit better it broadly. That's, an, uh, that's the kind of fairest interpretation of what people are saying. And Tom is asking, basically, do you think if, um, one, what do you think about the role of QE generally? Some of the candidates have got quite close to saying QE generally is a bad idea, although they weren't saying that when it was when government was trying to borrow very large sums of money in the middle of the um, crisis. But the um, and then some of them some of them are saying timing-wise, maybe we should have stopped a bit earlier, which was basically what you were arguing last summer. Yes, I, I fully supported the decisions to expand QE in 2020. Um, we had three successive rounds, and I think they played a very important role in helping to provide stability for the economy, ensuring that financial conditions did not tighten during the lockdowns. During 2021, as restrictions on the economy were eased, I thought that it was right to end the most recent QE programme early, to curtail it. Um, and um, ha had that been done, I have to say, I, I think to be fair, the current inflation rate would not be very different. You know, you would be talking about only a marginal impact because so much of the current inflation rate reflects global cost pressures. Um, we might be slightly better placed in terms of inflation expectations had we entered the QE programme early. But I, I don't think you can claim that it would have um, brought us back to 2% inflation this year. In the face of the scale of global cost pressures, monetary policy would have had to be massively tighter over the last couple of years in order to have on-target inflation now. We'd have to have huge unemployment. Yes, and the, the cost of that would have been unemployment and business failures and increased long-term scarring, increased long-term damage to the economy. So the task for monetary policy now is not to seek to achieve 2% inflation immediately because of the economic damage that that would cause but rather to seek to ensure that inflation expectations are well anchored and that inflation returns to 2% as those global shocks fade. So now, do you want, before we start to wrap up, but on, on QE, its reputation, its role, where's, where's the last year left us? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it has uh, opened up some questions for sure, especially some of the distributional 
uh, aspects of QE and, and, and whether you know, QE fueled uh, asset price growth in a way that uh, excess demand got created uh, by, by some, of the, you know, some of the people who, who own, these, uh, own mm -hmm. these assets in the aftermath of the opening. But I think in hindsight, I, I have full sympathy for the BOE's position. Uh, at that time, it, when QE, the decision to continue QE was, was made, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty on the outlook of the economy, on the outlook of the virus, and we didn't know, and, you know we, the economy hadn't um, firstly recovered back to pre-pandemic levels, and we also did have support schemes like the furlough schemes in place, which, which gave us a very unbody outlook of you know, what's happening underneath once these support measures have been taken out. So uh, I think the Bank of England then, once they realized that you know, the economy uh, is recovering fine and uh, that the labor market has not been scarred uh, by the pandemic, uh, did decide to end QE and, uh, and, and you know, sort of begin start, start yep. raising rates at that time. So I, I, I think the current inflation is a very supply-driven uh, it, it, it's, it's majorly a supply-driven phenomena, which is why um, we would have had to have, as Michael said, extremely, extremely tight monetary policy. Uh, and, and we have to also forget... At which point politicians would not be moaning. Exactly. They would that, not be moaning about the loose... Exactly. That the question then would be, why is there so much unemployment in the economy? So, so the yeah. question uh, that they would have to contend with uh, would, would, okay. would differ. Yeah. Right. Let's, let's just then wrap up, Michael, um, on... So just having survived six years, congratulations. The, um, uh, it, all got very, it all got very complicated at the end um, of those six years, although there's a lot going on all the way through. The, um, let, let's focus on the next crisis, because one of the features you've discussed is like a lot of shocks hitting the UK economy. And then when the next one comes, let's not predict what the next one is, but one thing that comes out of these discussions that as monetary policy becomes more controversial again, broadly, which is what we've just been discussing, is... In a world where we remain nearish the zero lower bound, and so fiscal policy is doing more work to stabilise the economy in a crisis, which is our experience of the last two large crises, this question of worrying about inflationary pressures in a way today, in a way that basically most policymakers weren't, because we haven't had it for a while before, how, how do you think that's going to affect how monetary and fiscal policymakers behave in, a, in the next crisis? Big picture. Well, for the MPC, we'll be guided by our remit. Um, I, and as you can see, one of the things which the MPC has done in recent years, and I talked about this, is to ensure that the toolkit is fit for purpose. In other words, that you've, you want to have options for monetary policy, the ability of monetary policy to respond to events which are as yet unforeseen. So you ensure that your toolkit can respond in ways, even if you don't need to use those tools immediately now. So our answer is, the bank should, the bank should maximise its chance to have some tools available. Fiscal, fiscal policy will still almost certainly have a bigger role than maybe we envisaged when we set up the current framework in the late 90s, early 2000s. Do you think people sitting around the table at the, at the MPC when the next crisis hits and the, and the fiscal authority starts borrowing large amounts of money again will be slightly more nervous than we were this time on how much QE we do during the crisis? I think it will depend on the economic outlook. Um, but more general point, yeah. the MPC's ability to respond to crises rests on the credibility of the framework. Yep. 
and that's important in terms of inflation expectations. So that's, be that's because... That's because if you were to do QE at a time when you lack credibility in the face of an economic shock, then I suspect longer-term inflation expectations would rise, bond yields would rise, rather than stability, you would have instability, and financial conditions tightening, the economic outlook would be worse. So maintaining the credibility of the monetary policy framework, and we've talked about several aspects to that, is really important, both for the MPC, but actually, for, I would say, for the UK. Very good. That's a good place to finish, which is countries should attempt to have a credible macroeconomic framework, and they shouldn't go messing it up, even if you need to win an election in the next 24 hours. So that's a good lesson for everybody watching who is running to be the future Prime Minister of this country. Right, can we all give Michael and Sonali a round of applause? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for uh, joining us. Good luck in the heat wave. Hopefully it will come down quicker than inflation manages to do so. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.